Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are doing a series on the Trinity right now. That kind of counters the one with Paul in the morning. So, the message is entitled, The Mystery of the Trinity, and this is part two. Now, in our last study, we looked at the scriptures for the verifiable evidence that would attest to the mystery of the unity and the Trinity in the Godhead. Um, We stated that the Trinity is beyond our ability to understand completely to its full end. I don't care what illustration you use. I don't care what kind of example you use. If you keep pushing any illustration too far, it breaks down. We stated also that the mystery of the unity of the Trinity, on the other hand, is not contrary to reason. It's reasonable as we go through the scriptures. Then we looked at the unity of God. We saw the unity of oneness in the three persons of the Godhead, yet one God. We saw the clear distinction of the three persons of the Godhead. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, the word one that we said is a compound unity, not the singleness of one. Very clear. And finally, we saw that the scriptural evidence for the nature of divine unity is based on, first, the word used for one in relationship to God that means a compound unity, not a wanting absolute, as I said. So not only from the appearance and from the evidence, but the very language, which is important. As I've explained to you many times, languages are different, and they have um, some have a greater manner of expression. They have different tenses, much broader. English is very limited. Um, Spanish is a little broader, but Greek is immense, having so many different moods and tenses. Um, the plural pronouns that appear in the conversations of the Godhead we saw. Um, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to the horny toes and lizards. He's speaking to the Trinity, our image. The plural name of God we saw also whenever a Hebrew word ends in an I am. It's a plural. Uh, Elohim, a compound unity of one. You have cherub, singular, an order of angels. Cherubim, plural. Seraph, singular. Seraphim, plural. So you have that example. Now, Remember that the emphasis of the Old Testament lies on the unity of one God because of the pagan background of polytheism. And despite this background, the Trinity is alluded to, as we will see. So if you just think back with me, back to Genesis, as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, God the creator. He spoke into the being. That's what the world understood. Adam and Eve understood it. His, their children understood it. And the generations afterwards.
But then it became corrupt and you have the Tower of Babel. Different forms of different worship. And so we went from one God to many gods. Now, if you've gone to school and college, they tell you that humanity went from many gods to one God. That's backwards. It's not the evidence of, of, of Scripture or history. Completely contrary to it. On the other hand, the New Testament Scriptures are permeated with the um, established doctrine of the Trinity as well as the unity of one God. So having this, all of this, as an established foundation, um, let's focus on the Trinity from three perspectives tonight. First, the term to describe the three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Trinity. <laughs> the term. We'll look at that. Secondly, the Old Testament allusions and inferences to the doctrine of the Trinity. And then we'll finish up with the New Testament overwhelming evidence concerning the Trinity. Now, if, if there is no Trinity, why is there so much evidence? It's like evolution, right? They say that we evolved. Well, common sense, if we did evolve, there would be more traces of transitions than extremes, right? But all they ever find is extremes. Why? Because there's no in-betweens. Simple. Simple. So let's begin here with the term to describe the three persons of the Godhead. It is the word Trinity. No person will ever find the word Trinity in the Old Testament or the New, first of all. You'll never find the word. The term comes from the Latin trinitios, uh, from the adjective trinus, meaning threefold or three in one. The term Trinity is a theological phrase that has been used to identify and to describe the doctrine revealed by God, recorded and declared throughout the scriptures, as we'll see. The doctrine of the Trinity reveals three distinct persons in the Godhead. Co-equal, co-eternal, but one God. The first appearance of the term Trinity was in the second century. The man who first used the term Trinity is believed to be Theophilus, Bishop of Antioch in Syria, 168 to 183 AD. Two groups arose during the second century who denied the doctrine of the Trinity. The one group is known as Monarchianism, who denied the Trinity or the deity of Christ and the personality of the Holy Spirit. The other group was known as Sabellianism, who denied the separate and distinct identities of the three persons by teaching that they were three different manifestations of God and nothing else. Today, we have similar groups embracing this heresy in Unitarianism, Jesus-only doctrine, and Oneness doctrine. We still have it around, but they name it something else. In the 4th century, the first council met to formulate the doctrine, 
at Nicaea in 325 AD, where Athanasius prevailed against Arius. Arius denied the deity of Jesus Christ, professing he was created and exalted. So that there was a point in time when Jesus was created. In other words, he denied the eternal aspect of Jesus, that he was eternal, one of his attributes. This is the very doctrine, by the way, taught by the Jehovah Witness, the doctrine of Arius. They say that Jesus was a created angel at one time. It was there at Nicaea that the deity of Christ was confirmed because of the heresies that were coming against it. Now, the controversy continued through other councils. At the council at Chalcedon in 351 AD. Then at the council of Constantinople in 381 AD. That's where the Western and the Eastern Church divided. Rome and Constantinople. It was at Constantinople that the doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity were formulated into what is known as the Nicene Creed. Okay? The following example of dogma is found in the Athanasian Creed formulated during the 5th century. And I'm quoting them exactly. We worship one God in Trinity and one Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor separating the substance. For the person of the Father is one, of the Son another, and of the Holy Ghost another. But of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, there is one divinity, equal glory, and co-eternal majesty. What the Father is, the same is the Son and the Holy Ghost. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Ghost is uncreated. The Father is immense. The Son immense. The Holy Ghost immense. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Ghost eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So there are not three beings uncreated, nor three immense, but one uncreated and one immense. In like manner, the Father is omnipotent, all-powerful. The Son is omnipotent. The Holy Ghost is omnipotent. And yet, there are not three omnipotence, but one omnipotent. Thus, the Father is Lord. The Son is Lord, the Holy Ghost is Lord, because we are thus compelled by Christian verity to confess each person severally to be God and Lord. So we are prohibited from saying that there are three gods or lords. The Father was made from none, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. Therefore there is one Father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, there is nothing first or last, nothing greater or lesser, but all three co-eternal persons 
are co-equal among themselves so that through all, as is above said, both unity and in Trinity and Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. They hid it from every angle to clarify that there are three persons, one God, co-equal, co-powerful, co-existing. That's what the Bible teaches throughout the word as we'll see. Now, the Augsburg Confession of 1530, which is the early Lutheran confession, expresses full agreement with the decree of the Nicene Synod concerning the unity of the divine essence and of the three persons to wit, that there is one divine essence which is called and is God, same essence and power, who are also co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This you find in the Contemporary Wesleyan Theology book in page 393. So again, I'm giving you history that is perhaps not the most exciting, but to show you how it is that the term came about and why the defense came about and the need of it. Okay? So you can see where it's coming from. So this is the term used to describe the three persons of the Godhead, Trinity. But as we said, you will never find it in the Bible. Okay? It's a theological word to describe what is taught about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let's move to the Old Testament allusions and inferences to the doctrine of the Trinity. The first person of the Trinity, the Father, is attested to throughout all the Old Testament, completely, all the way through. In our second study of the doctrine of, the, uh, of God, we have um, the existence of God. When we studied a, a, a theology at one point years back, um, we discussed the existence of God that was denied. We saw the existence of God affirmed, and we noted the existence of God confirmed. The existence or the evidence of the scripture is unmistakable. Listen to Isaiah 45.5. Isaiah cries out, I am the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, the covenant God. And there is no other, there is no God besides me, singular, one God. Okay? Isaiah 63.16 again declares, You, O Lord, capital L, small r, small, small o-r-d. Okay? That's Adonai. Equivalent to kurios in the Greek, Lord. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From everlasting is your name. Father of the nation. Never is God ever referred to in the Old Testament as Father of an individual Jew. He's always the Father of the nation. Father of an individual comes through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Okay? Very important. Malachi 2.10. We just finished the book of Malachi. The Minor Prophets. Malachi said, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi 2.10. One. The Son, Jesus Christ, is best seen in the Old Testament in the angel of the Lord, if you've been with our Old Testament studies, that's pointed out often. 
This is called a Christophany, which is distinct from other appearances of God called theophanies. Theo, God, ophany, appearance. So there's appearances of God in many different ways, but a Christophany is an appearance of Jesus Christ prior to the incarnation of the New Testament. These are um, variable manifestations of God, the theophanies of God, to give evidence of his presence such as a cloud, pillar of fire. Those are theophany, the voice of God, to give evidence that God is present on the mountain, lightning, thunder, a voice, earthquake, theophanies, to prove that God is there. The cloud, the pillar of fire, theophanies. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, in Genesis 16.10, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. The angel of the Lord. Hagar called the angel of the Lord, all capital letters, Lord. Lord, the covenant God, and God. In Genesis 16, 11, and 13. Three angels appeared to Abraham, as you know, in Genesis 18, 1, and 13. As they sat in his tent door, and one of them was identified as the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ. He spoke to Abraham. The context of the conversation was the birth announcement of Isaac. And what did Sarah do? How does she respond? She laughed. Should I, in old age, have a child? <laughs> and God said, why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. Well, you did laugh. So you call his name, laughter, Isaac. Okay? It was the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 25 of that chapter, Abraham called him the judge of all the earth. The angel of the Lord is called Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh will provide, and he swears by himself to bless Abraham for his obedience to offer up his son, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, 14, and 15, and 16. The angel of God spoke to Jacob also in a dream and identified himself to Jacob as the God of Bethel in Genesis 31, 11 to 13. Remember, this is the place where Jacob had anointed the pillar and made his vow to God of giving him one-tenth of everything he had if he brought him back. Okay? He's running away from his brother. God told Moses that he would send his angel before him, having power to pardon, and God's name was in him. Exodus 23, verse 20 and 21. The angel of the Lord appears as the commander of the Lord's army. And tells Joshua to take his shoes off his feet. For the place where he stood was holy ground. And he received worship from Joshua. As he placed his face on the ground. In Joshua chapter 5 verse 13 through 15. The angel of God said to Gideon. In Judges 6 20 
and 24. Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. Gideon did so and the angel of God received the offering and Gideon built an altar there calling it the Lord our peace. Keep in mind what the scriptures reveal about the nature of angels. They are created beings of God. No angel has ever received or accepted worship. Twice the angel told John to worship God, not him, in Revelation 19.10 and 22.9. If Abraham and these others worship the angel of the Lord, he has to be God, not a literal angel. Simple. The angel of the Lord is identified as God. The angel of the Lord is recognized as God. The angel of the Lord is, calls himself God. The angel of the Lord receives worship as God. The angel of the Lord is distinct from God the Father. And the angel of the Lord has attributes of deity. The ultimate theophany being Christ himself in the incarnation to reveal the Father. John 1.18 114, the word became flesh, we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and God was the word, or the word was God. Then he became incarnate. Now, he is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. So the angel of the Lord was an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. When Jesus became incarnate, he became incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, and he is fully God in every way. Now, the Holy Spirit is also indicated as a distinct and separate person of the Godhead throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2, revealing the creative power of the third person of the Trinity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered, literally fluttered, uh, oscillated back and forth to begin the creation and the creative work. Genesis 6-3 my spirit shall not always strive with man forever. The Spirit of God abode in specific people, as you know, such as Moses, Joshua, David, Gideon, and you can go on with all the prophets in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God came upon them, clothed themselves with them. So the Holy Spirit of God came upon men in the Old Testament. Certain men for certain things in certain time. Not every Israelite had the Spirit of God in them. It was upon prophets, kings, priests, and special people for tasks like the building of the tabernacle. In the New Testament, as we've seen, is completely different. Every person who repents of their sin and asks Jesus in their heart, their body becomes a temple of God. We receive the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now David said, the spirit of the Lord 
spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. The third person of the Trinity. Isaiah was quoted by Luke in Luke um, 4.18 at the synagogue of Nazareth. He quotes Isaiah 61.1. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, just as Jesus speaking. Because the Lord Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he goes on. Then he closes the book. He says, in, this, this, in, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to him. He stopped at a comma. Why? Because that was the first coming. From that point on is the second coming. Very, very clear. Zechariah proclaimed, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. We just also finished Zechariah 4, 6 months back. In the book of Numbers, it alludes to the Trinity in the doxology. In Numbers 6, 24 to 26, listen to it. The Lord bless you, Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh. So let me say, the Yahweh bless you and keep you. The Lord make your face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you and give you peace. Three times, Lord. The illusions of Trinity is there. And there are many like this. If you remember Isaiah 6, 3, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. That's what the seraphims were saying. They fly overhead. With two wings, they cover their face. Two, they fly. And two, they cover their feet. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. The Trinity. Now, the formula of Concord of 1576 is the late Lutheran confession expresses full agreement with all three of the ancient Christian creeds, which provide the official development of the Trinitarian doctrine all the way through the, the rather late Athanasian creed. And I'm quoting, Of the apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian creed, it states, We publicly confess that we embrace them and reject all heresies and all dogmas which ever have been brought into the church of God contrary to their decision. So all they're saying is that they stand by the creed that was formulated according to what the scriptures teach about the three persons of the Godhead, yet one God, and reject all opposition, all distortion, and all heretical teaching that would contradict scripture. They affirm this. So these are the Old Testament allusions and inferences to the doctrine of the Trinity. We can look at others. They're all over the Old Testament. But this should suffice. Let's finish up with the New Testament overwhelming evidence concerning the Trinity. What is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Always remember this simple little formula. The Old Testament is progressive. And it's in parts. No one prophet had all the truth. It is progressive. Okay? The New Testament 
is the climax, the fulfillment of all the prophecies about Jesus Christ. So, the New Testament interprets the Old because it's the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate climax of all the prophetic aspects of the prophecies. There are certainly still prophecies to be fulfilled in the second coming, but regarding the person of Jesus Christ, it's all laid out for us. At the birth of Jesus, all three persons are distinguished. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit says will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. The Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the news to Mary. Wow. In fact, you should call his name Emmanuel, God with us, in fulfillment of all the prophetic scriptures. The very first prophecy was Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, a woman having a baby without the aid of a man. She holds the egg, not the seed. Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The word virgin there means one who has never known a man sexually, not just a young woman. Some translations say a young woman. There's, there's no big deal for a young woman to have a baby. You might even give him the name Emmanuel, God with us, but that doesn't mean he is, okay? It's very, very specific, okay? A virgin, one who is espoused, that's the word, and has not consummated the wedding, but it's legal, a marriage, as a legal marriage. That's why Joseph wanted to put her away privately, Matthew one twenty three makes that very, very clear. Now, at the baptism of Christ, we have all three persons in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, the son Jesus was in the water. Remember? He comes out to his cousin to baptize him. Jesus' the son is in the water. The Spirit of God descended like a dove on the son from above. And the voice of the Father came from heaven. And it's heard about the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Right? And the Father told John the Baptist, on whoever you see the Spirit descend, he's the Messiah. John the Baptist, his cousin, six months older than Jesus, was a witness to that. Now the baptismal formula in Matthew encompasses the Trinity also. In Matthew 28, 19, listen to it carefully. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One, two, three, yet one God. The word for name in that verse is singular. Let's read it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Baptizing, baptizing them in the singular name, one God, of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, the three persons. It's simple. Then what proceeds 
is to name the three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Exodus 23:21, God said that his name was in the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnation of Jesus, we said. Jesus continually said, I am Yahweh. I am that I am the becoming one. Exodus 3.14, John 8.12, John 8.58, John 9.5, 10.7, 10.11. 11.25, over and over again. The name of Joshua in the Hebrew, as you know, is a contraction of Yahweh Shua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The name Joshua, translated to the Greek, is the name Jesus. Who's Jesus? Yahweh is salvation. So you have this inner relationship of the one God. Jesus said in John 14, 26, as he's speaking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit and his coming and him leaving. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. I, the Father, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, the comforter. Three persons, one God. And the Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself, but of Christ. Jesus said that in John sixteen thirteen. Sometimes in the church, people begin to give more glory to the Holy Spirit. Now, understand, he is God. But the Holy Spirit never brings attention to himself. The Holy Spirit never speaks about himself. He never adds to the word. All he does is point us to Jesus. He turns on the light to understand the word of God. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he never speaks about himself. He is the silent witness of Jesus. Jesus came to bring us to the Father. The Holy Spirit comes to bring us to the Son. The Trinity has no inferiority complex. Each plays their part in the plan of redemption and salvation. One God, three persons. Jesus bears testimony to the Trinity in John. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. John 14, 16. Another of the same kind, essence, deity, but different in number. The third person. The comforter is the Holy Ghost, he says, or the Holy Spirit, depending on your translation, in John 14, 26, the third person of the Trinity. The Father will send in my name, John 15, 26. In these three verses that I gave you, you have three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul's benediction to the Corinthians names the three persons of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, he says, 
the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Three persons. In the second letter, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit. One, two, three. Three persons. The Pauline epistles, many of them open with the greetings and salutation from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But they invariably close the epistle just with the mention of Jesus Christ. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Philemon, and Titus. Colossians also. All of them. Now, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in the following epistles. Ephesians 2.18, 3, 2-5, verse 14 and 17. Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6, and chapter 5, 18-20. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you have 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2-5. through 2nd Thessalonians 2, 13-14. In 2nd Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, verse 13 and 14. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Then the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. Chapter 6, 4 through 6. Chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. We go to 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 14, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. These are just some. If I gave you all of them, we'd be here all night. Then we have Jude. Jude also makes references to the Trinity. Now, you know, Jude is just one little book, okay? Um, in verse 20 and 21, he says, Praying in the Holy Spirit. He says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. And he says, Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Holy Spirit, love of God, Jesus Christ unto eternal life, Lord. The three persons. The evidence for the Trinity as well as the doctrine throughout Scripture, is without question then. It cannot be denied. Not without contradicting the evidence. Now, people can reject things. People can say, I don't believe it. But it's not because there's no evidence of it. It's just they refuse to accept the evidence. So we must make a distinction between not believing because there's no evidence or not believing because they refuse and reject the evidence. The Trinity of God is revelation of the Godhead to man is very, very clear. 
The Trinity is beyond man's ability to comprehend fully, as we said, by our own intellect alone or simple logic. But the evidence is there. So we don't understand it to its full end, and I've given you, again, any illustration will break down. You and I are an inferior trinity. We're creating the image and likeness of God. If God's a trinity, he made us in the same way. I have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Three parts. Yet I've never introduced myself to one person ever in the 67 years I've lived. Hi, this is Xavier's body, Xavier's soul, Xavier's spirit. When I die, this body is going to be barbecued, incinerated, if the Lord tarries and allows me to die. My soul deals with my intellect, my emotions, and my will. My spirit is the real me. When this body gives its last breath, my soul and my spirit will be instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. Okay? The reason we cannot come to comprehend it completely is that God is infinite and man is finite. We know a lot and we understand a lot by the grace of God of our Christians because we're born again. We have the Spirit of God, the mind of Christ, the Word of God. But there is so much that we don't know because He hasn't revealed it. When we get up to Him, we're all going to walk around with our mouth open. Wow. I mean, have you ever thought how little this book is? It really is. Regarding the things of God. Yet he has revealed to us sufficient things to demonstrate how omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God is. I mean, he gave us one chapter for the creation. One chapter. And then some specific items in chapter 2 to be inserted back in. He's not trying to convince that he created. He's telling you he created it. All right? From Genesis 1, verse 1, let's just mark Genesis 12, 1. There's 2,000 years, 12 chapters. Then from chapter 12 of Genesis to the end of Malachi. So here you have 2,000 years to the end of Malachi, all the Old Testament. There's 2,000 years. How do you justify it? 12 chapters to the rest of the Bible, 2,000 years. God's not interested in giving us everything. He could have easily given us as much material just in the, for the first two chapters as the rest of that. So he's giving us what's necessary. He's given us the ability to understand to a certain extent. And we come to him in childlike faith. Faith always points me back to the revelation of God. Faith is not just believing hard enough. Faith is not just a gut feeling. It's not emotions. It's my putting my entire trust in what God has revealed about himself, about angels, about Satan, about sin, about eternity, about me, about 
the fall, about redemption, about the new heaven, the new earth, about everything. I believe the revelation of that is biblical faith. If your faith contradicts the word of God, your faith is foolishness. All right? Simple. Let me leave you with three um, scriptures that not only give evidence of the Trinity, but their interaction and involvement in the life of believers. Because, as you know, God is transcendent. He's beyond our, our finding out. So what we know is only what he has revealed about himself. The first ver- uh, scripture is Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, Paul says, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy. God has sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts. Wow. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Second one is Ephesians 2.18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. All three persons are mentioned there again. Through Jesus, we have access to the Father by one spirit. The third one is 1 Peter 1.2. Listen. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's the first person. In sanctification of the Spirit. There's the third person. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's the second person of the Trinity. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. How can you deny the Trinity? If you do good homework through the Old and the New Testament. It's impossible. You just refuse to believe God's revelation about himself. And the three persons of the Godhead. The Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647 declares the following. Quote, In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, eternally preceding from the Father and the Son. All three are interlinked, related. Each distinct from the other, yet one God. So this is the New Testament's overwhelming evidence concerning the Trinity. Now there is much, much more. We'll have one more study on it. But the evidence of the Trinity is overwhelming even as when we study the series on the Millennial Kingdom. There's more material on the Millennial Kingdom than probably any other subject and nobody teaches on it. It's all over the Scriptures. Major, minor prophets. Book of Revelation speaks a little bit on it. Gives a couple of chapters in that. And so, remember the Trinity from these three perspectives. By the term Trinity that describes the three persons of the Godhead. Okay? It's man-made based on what is found within the Scriptures. A theological word, but the evidence for the three persons is throughout. Secondly, by the Old Testament allusions and inferences 
to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now remember when Paul and them were writing, there was only the Old Testament. That is the scriptures, the Old Testament, okay? Every Jew believed in the Trinity. They understood what the word Elohim, God, meant. And Daniel says, uh, and the scripture says, and, and what is the name of his son? Wow. Then thirdly, by the New Testament, overwhelming evidence concerning the Trinity. So, as you do your homework, as you study the scriptures, mark God's revelation about himself. It's the only way we can be sure about who God is, what he says about himself, and everything else that he touches on. It's absolute, objective truth that you can receive and accept. It's absolutely true without mistake. Your eternity can be placed on it because God cannot lie. He is the epitome of holiness. He cannot learn anything. Nothing surprises him. And he is gracious to his creation in every way. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for tonight. We pray, Lord, you continue to instruct us and we thank you for your word that we can go to and study and look and search out, Lord. Father, see your uh, amazing mercy over our life and that you've given us everything necessary for godliness and to believe and to trust you. So, Lord, we pray even now, those that are here, that you speak to their hearts or over the Internet. Lord, if someone doesn't know you, that you would just allow your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and open their eyes to see their need of your forgiveness and the need to be born again. As you're praying, if you're here tonight and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're over the Internet, God has allowed you to hear God's Word. It really doesn't matter what I be talking about. If your heart is open and you're open to what God is saying, then he has allowed you to see your need of salvation. Now, the ball is in your court, so to speak. God has initiated, now you have to respond. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Do you believe that he can forgive you of all your sins? Do you believe that he can give to you eternal life? Because that's what he promised you. And if you do, the Bible says that man believes in his heart and confesses with your mouth that you shall be saved. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You've heard the word of God tonight. And the Holy Spirit is here to make that real to you. But he will not make the decision for you. You have to choose where you want to spend eternity. In heaven or in hell. And ultimately in the lake of fire. God doesn't send you there. You send yourself. He sent the son to die for the whole world. Every person. But each person must make that decision. If you see your need. Then this is your prayer to him of repentance. And he's going to forgive you. And save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit.
I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.